Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths, and my guest, Ken Adgety, is a professional story merchant. And he was here just a couple of weeks ago, and the topic was things that every great story has to have. And storytelling, good storytelling, is a critical component component of communication, not to mention marketing. And the conversation was so fascinating that I immediately asked him to come back to the show to talk about the power of stories. And I hope that you will go back to that episode, listen, and definitely take notes. And Ken recently gifted me with his book, Tell Your Story to the World and Sell It for Millions. And he begins a narrative by stating, I believe in the power of stories to change the world. We'll interrupt anything, work, dinner, exercise, meditation, even sex, to take in a dramatic story. The latest terrorist attack, the latest political scandal, the latest miraculous brush with death. Swapping stories reassures us, binds us together as human beings, makes us comfortable with our crazy world by giving us a feeling of being in control. Stories educate, make us laugh, Win elections, give us courage and entertain, and stories save lives. Every human transaction begins and sometimes ends with, what is your story? Ken, thank you so much for sending your book to me, and you overnighted it. I really appreciate it. I spent the whole weekend with it. Well, I'm thrilled that it actually got there overnight. FedEx is what it used to be. (laughs) I got to notice that it was – go ahead. I'm sorry. It's much more challenging to get there anywhere these days. It is. And actually, it didn't get here overnight. It got here one day later, but it was still over the weekend. So I was able I got a note that they lied to me. They said, oh, it's going to be there on Friday or whatever day it was. And I waited. I kept running to my front door to see if there was a package on the steps. And finally, late that night, I got another one. Oh, it'll be there tomorrow. Oh, dang it. But I got it. And it's it's here. It's on my desk. And Thank you so much. So anyway, welcome back to your partner in Success Radio. I'm delighted to have you back. Well, thanks. I'm delighted to be back. It was great talking with you. Well, you're a storyteller. And listen, we're all storytellers. And this this is my, my thinking about storytelling. You don't, you're not, I'm not saying you have to be a liar, but it's great. And some people are like, oh, I have to tell a story. I have to lie. No, 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 no. But storytelling and, I don't know, your resume, they have a lot in common, don't they? I mean, we're always telling stories to ourselves or to one another, or we're you know trying to find a way to make what we have to say important and make it stick, make it last. And that's really where you come in. And I wanted to talk with you about the power of storytelling because let's face it, we all, we tell stories from the moment we start crying and demand that bottle. We're we're telling a story, mom, feed me. I mean, that's just the way life is. (laughs) That's really true. I have a, I have a uh, one and a half year old uh, grandson and uh, he's a storyteller already because 
you know, if he needs something, he puts on a story to get what he needs. And when babies cry, you can sometimes think, well, you know, he's not really crying. He's just dramatizing uh, because if you walk out of the room, he stops crying immediately because there's no point to it without an audience, right? So they'll cry to get what they need, as you said. And uh, it, it's just, since they don't have words, it, it's the way that they can tell a story without words. Um, and it, it's uh, amazing to watch that develop in humans as they learn one way after the other to tell stories as they grow up. It really is. And what I kind of lost my train of thought because I'm looking at the book, I'm listening to you, my brain is just going zit, zit all over the place. So I'll just apologize right now. But I remember many years ago, I was pretty young, and I was talking with somebody, I believe, in a feed store or a um, lumber store. I, I know it was someplace because I lived in a rural part of the state. And I remember this very small, very elderly little man coming over to me. And apparently, he'd been listening to this conversation. It wasn't private, so I had no issues with that. But he looked at me and he said, honey, do you know that you're one of the best natural storytellers I've ever met you ought to be in sales. I wanted to slug him. I really uh, did. <laughs> I mean, really? I, I, who wants to be in sales? I mean, come on. <laughs> Unless you really think you want to be in sales. Well, and I was terribly offended until I grew up and became a little bit less arrogant and wished that I could go back and find him and apologize for probably the blood that shot out of my eyes. <laughs> I don't know. I just I wasn't impressed. <laughs> Well, he was probably a salesman himself, and recognizing well, he was a farmer. He was a farmer. Oh yeah, was, yeah, yeah. In fact, I know well, what it was. We had just come from an auction, a, a livestock auction. I don't know what I was doing there. Um, I think I went with some friends, and he I probably was telling the story about how I managed to buy two little pigs. I didn't need pigs, but I talk with my hands. I didn't do that in an auction anymore. <laughs> That's great. Well, it, it, I think you could look at every facet of human life and, and talk about it in terms of stories because it's the basic way we communicate. Um, a long time ago, somebody was trying to explain something to me logically. An Italian professor, when I was a Fulbright professor in Italy, uh, was trying to explain a woman to me, and uh, he interrupted himself immediately and said, you know what, forget it. Let me, let me give you an example. And uh, then he stopped himself again and said, because isn't, isn't life just an example after all? And uh, what that illustrated to me, you know, he, then he gave me a story of what she did yesterday. And uh, in fact, it totally clarified what he was talking about, because what we really get is examples and stories. We don't always get logical explanations and mathematical equations but we always get a story. We get the point of it. If the storyteller is a good storyteller. And uh, that's, that's why when we speak in analogies, like my mother always compared everything to everything. Once I took her to Venice, Italy, and uh, she was from Louisiana too. And, and I wanted her to take, taste some of my favorite dishes. So I took her to a restaurant in Venice where um, we, we had, I ordered risotto nero you know, uh, pasta and squidding uh, for her. And uh, she just started eating it. So it were just the most natural thing in the world. 
And uh, I said, Mom, what do you think of this? She goes, it tastes like rice and gravy. And uh, <laughs> she always, always had a Louisiana. <laughs> Yeah, she compared it to something all the time. If I took her to Greece, the hills look like Oklahoma. You know, it's like you're always comparing. And when you think about what a comparison is, a simile, uh, it's a storytelling tool. It's it's things uh, one of the tools you use when you're telling stories. And uh, we are really wired to understand things through telling stories because our intuition is much stronger than our reason. Uh, we spend years and years trying to repress it so that our reason takes over. But the truth is, it's the reason that, uh, you know, that takes second place to the intuition. I like that, and that makes perfect sense to me. So we, the last time you were here, we talked about your uncles and basically what your gen, that was the genesis of your story of being a storyteller and your uncle, let's say I wrote it down, your uncle Ed could not tell a story, but your uncle Wilbur basically got you started on your own path, didn't he? Yeah, he sure did. He's, uh, I, I would sit on a front porch and in the countryside around Eunice and, and listen to him tell stories all day if he, if we could, uh, but at least for a couple of hours, because he had a way of immediately making any story uh, the only thing going on in the universe at the time. And uh, so and he knew how to pace it. He knew how to have the right tone of voice. You know, his voice would drop. If it was kind of a horror story. Uh, it would just be excited and, uh, rigid and disciplined if it was a, an explanation of how co- one cotton seed is better than another. Uh, no matter what it was, he turned it into a dramatic story. I lost you. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, I'm here. Uh, okay, good. Yeah, I caught myself, you know, after we had our last conversation and reading this book over the weekend, what if you hadn't had these two uncles, one to demonstrate the power of tremendously gifted storytelling, riveting storytelling, and the other one that would send you out to, you know, you just, I, I've got to go swap the hogs. I, I got to go. I got to go. This is so tedious. Right, right. What would have happened, do you think, if you didn't have those examples very early in your life? And, See, that, and that, you, were, that, you were paying attention to both of them. Yeah, it's true. There were a lot of conditions there because I was I loved uh, South Louisiana, which is where my mother's uh, Aguilard family was from, and the Latrelay family, and I, uh, I I loved it more than the cold north of Kansas City, where my father's family lived, and so anything that happened in Louisiana became special. And I noticed that one of the differences the people in Louisiana were always you know happy to go to the porch and start swapping stories. They didn't need an excuse to do that. And it was the days before television took over the public uh, ambiance of the house. And uh, so we sat outside and told the stories. And uh, in Kansas City, everybody was much more businesslike, efficient, and stories were basically a waste of time um, if, if it got in the way of doing something tangible drawn to the stories because I was the happiest when I was listening to someone tell a story. And and it all began with jokes because my uncle was a great joke teller. uh, And I 
soon became a great joke teller myself. And one of the things you do is as you're listening to a joke, you start thinking of a joke to respond with that's somehow connected to that joke. And you could go on and on and on all day. We go fishing and do nothing but tell jokes and stories all day together. And uh, it's the only dialogue we needed, and it communicated whatever you needed to communicate. If it was grief or elation or uh, adventure, you found a story that fit that that purpose. And uh, as I got older and went to college and went on with my life, I started realizing how, how we're surrounded with stories in every aspect, whether you're in a court listening, you know, you're on a jury, you're listening to two attorneys tell different versions of the same story, and then you're trying to decide whose story do I believe, which one of these stories adds up, you know, the best, and which one am I going to sign on to, or whether you're on a used car lot uh, deciding on a on a car and the salesman says, just one thing in his story about the car that makes you suddenly suspect the whole story. And you think, no way am I going to buy a car from this guy. Um, or whether you're on a first date and you're listening to the woman talk anything about food or anything, and suddenly she says something that you think, you know, I don't like her story. I don't buy her story. We're, we're always doing stories. We're listening to politicians. Huey Long was a great storyteller. That called yeah, he was. Louisiana. He I've was nuts, but he was good. Yeah, he was. He was. He was good because he was a great storyteller. So people didn't mind that he was nuts, and uh, he could get away with anything. Uh, you know, he. So they accused him of embezzling money, and he said, "How much money do you think I embezzled?" And they said, "A million dollars." And he laughed and he said, "Boys, you know me better than that." Why would I bother with the, you know? I remember that story. Another one was our our other very flamboyant, um, gosh, what was his name? He just died recently. And I ought to know his name, but he was flamboyant and crooked as he could be. Edwin Edwards. We call him Edwin. Edwin Edwin. Edwards around here. Yeah. He, I'll tell you what, you couldn't believe a word that man said, but oh my God, he was charming. I knew him. I knew his family. I wouldn't let him in my house. But he was charming. Yeah, it's it's amazing how powerful stories are. You know, the, one favorite example I have is the, the president and the press. Every president has a different style with the press, and some of them are really woefully p- pitiful, uh, where the press just loves to attack the president. The president doesn't have any idea how to deal with it. But Ronald Reagan was one of the presidents who did know how to deal with it. And he got himself out of some incredibly ticklish moments uh, by telling humor. a story. With humor. You know, yeah. with, or with humor. With humor. Like one Madison Square Garden at a press conference, the largest one he ever gave. And people were asking him more and more uh, difficult and embarrassing questions about the Department of the Interior. And um, he was not comfortable with it because everything was kind of a mess in the department at that point. But somebody finally says, where is Secretary Hicks right now as, we, as we're speaking, Mr. President? And he said, he thought for a minute, he goes, well, for all I know, he's strip mining the Rose Garden. And the whole place burst into laughter and laid off of him. They stopped asking him questions about the environment. 
because he disarmed them just with his ability to tell that little story. Uh, and, and one time they, they asked him at a press conference, why did we invade Granada, Mr. President? Because we had invaded this whole island of Granada. And uh, he had been given a huge you know, briefing from the War Department about what to say if he was asked that question. But he just put the paper aside and looked at them for a minute. And he says, well, nutmeg comes from Granada. No Granada, no nutmeg. No nutmeg, no Christmas. And that was his answer on why we invaded Granada. Uh, and I'm telling you, the press liked that much better than all kinds of policy statements and arguments. Uh, and it was, again, using a story to uh, – with the, the power of stories, using that story to deflect, you know, criticism of himself, but also to put things in perspective for people. You know, he he uh, he had the perfect answer for everything because he he knew how to tell stories. Was that part of his personality, or was it part of his Hollywood history, or both? I think well, his, I think his personality attracted him to Hollywood uh, in the first place. And, of course, in Hollywood, you learn all about the power of stories. Um, you know, I was in the academic world for 20 years as a tenured professor, and I couldn't, you know, I, I spent all my time teaching stories, analyzing stories, et cetera. Uh, but then when I left the academic world to go into the Hollywood world, I thought, oh, my God, I thought that was the, the world of stories. This is the world of stories because pay a million dollars for a story. They'd pay six million dollars for a story. They would uh, turn companies upside down because they lost the rights to a story. Um, think about, you know, the Broccoli family who happened to get the rights to the James Bond stories. You know, their whole life was changed generation after generation because of, you know, Albert Broccoli's relationship with Ian Fleming. Uh, there you can see the power of stories worth millions and millions of dollars. There's even a profession called trackers I learned about when I became a producer who would call people to say, do you control the rights to such such a story? And I asked them, you know, why are you asking? Well, my client is trying to find out who controls the rights. And, and they were paid thousands of dollars a month just to track down the rights to stories. And God knows in the last 30 years, I've spent a lot of time you know, ascertaining the rights to estates and to stories uh, that got lost in the murkiness of legal records and so on. Um, it's an amazing labyrinth of, of rights that are extremely important because you can't shoot a movie until you have the rights and the rights have to be, the underlying rights have to be, uh, a chain of title has to be in evidence. And that means research, the Library of Congress and into legal records of estates, and I've been in every state of the union almost, tracking down the rights to, to stories and dealing with uh, survivors who didn't even know they held the rights. And so the power of stories is is such because they are really the infrastructure of human life. You know, I've I'm not really a, a movie person. Give me a stack of books, I'm as happy as I can be. But Unless in a movie, I mean, and I know you're a movie guy, but if you don't get me in the first 10 minutes, I'm, I'm going to go to the kitchen and cook something. I'm just not going to scram. And I've been known to fall asleep right. and drool. I just, movies are, are just not my thing, and I really hate TV. I always have. 
But I've always noticed that some of these movies that, you know, think, oh, you know, this was supposed to possibly have been done in the 1920s, and here it still kind of lingers. And I don't think that's an exaggeration. Some of these movies, and you mentioned one the last time you were here, just get lost because of the rights and because of, you know, the, the money and who owns it and what studio. And I don't know how you handle it. I would be banging my head against the wall all the time. Well, we do that. Don't worry. Oh, okay, good. That's one of that's one of our, our most common methods. <laughs> because it works. the thing about it is you're you're dealing with human beings. And uh I always say about the human race, can't live with them, can't live without them. Uh, and they are crazy and crazy things happen. Sometimes out of spite, an author doesn't document a, a, a transaction. He'll give somebody the rights, take $25,000 or, you know, $100,000, and then lose the paperwork. And then he dies. And then, and then, oh. No, then you're no, talking then you're to his widow, and he goes, Bill didn't have any paperwork. Well, he had a box or so, but I got rid of that long ago. And uh, then you're suddenly stuck. How do you prove the rights to this story? It goes on and on and on. And, yes, banging your head against the wall is an excellent method of coping with it. It doesn't always solve the problem, but at least it gets no. you through the moment. No. Oh, you know, and if that doesn't work, bite your steering wheel. I've been known to do that. <laughs> that oh. <works>. If you <laughs> have a leather steering wheel, don't do it if you don't have leather. So, anyway, <laughs> that's my best advice today. But the power of storytelling is also the business of storytelling, and, and you've touched on that a little bit. First of all, let me go back just a bit because you touched on this as well. For those who didn't hear our first episode, and I hope you go back and listen, how in the world did you go from being a professor, which sounds kind of boring, and it just does. I mean, who wants to hang around with a professor? But who wants to hang around with the Hollywood producers? So there's a big leap there. How did that happen? Well, that's a long story, but <laughs> it happened because I was, uh, I, I suddenly realized after nearly 20 years that I wasn't really happy in the academic world. Um, I felt like I was in a small pond and getting a bit, uh, not because of the students, and not because of the wonderful subjects I taught, like Homer's Iliad and Dante's Inferno and uh, Renaissance drama, but because of the, uh, the narrow-mindedness of the faculty and administration and the insistence on focusing on, you know, Milton's sonnets from the year 1810 to 1812, as opposed to British literature or God forbid, British literature compared to French literature or British literature compared to American literature. The narrowness of it all made me crazy. And I I wanted to deal with larger issues for larger audiences. So I, I started thinking about it and ran into an idea that I developed into 16 movies, it turned out. And uh, Shades of Love was the name of it. They were romance movies that have shown around the world. And uh, that became my first project. And I made the transition because a good friend named Norman Cousins, who was a distinguished editor of Saturday Review and 
went to became a professor of humanities at UCLA, um, me and told me that I needed to get into the entertainment business instead of the academic world. And I asked him why, and he said, because nothing is restricted there. Everything is allowed. You know, you're encouraged to be creative in every way, um, and, and you can exercise all your different interests and talents there, et cetera. And I said, well, the problem with that, Norman, is that I, at my age, I don't know anything about entertainment. So he reached up on the on his bookshelf and took down William Goldman's uh, book, Adventures in the Screen Trade, which I heartily recommend everyone to read. And he pointed to a page, I don't know what page it was, page 54 or whatever, and, and pointed to a sentence that Goldman said, remember this important fact about Hollywood. Nobody knows anything. And uh, I love that. I mean, he was telling me that I was on a level playing field uh, because things change all the time. And no matter what truth you tell people about Hollywood, it's not true. Um, something else has just proved it before you've even said it. Uh, there's always exceptions to every rule. Uh, and that's what makes it exciting. But he encouraged me to do it. And I decided that I would uh, I would try to be different by learning a little bit before I went into this change. And I decided to get hold of every contract. I knew all about stories, didn't have to worry about that. I decided to learn about the business of Hollywood. So I got hold of contracts and I read a contract, a producer friend of mine who's at Fox in those days, showed me a contract, said I could read it, but not leave his building with it because it had just been signed. So I walked across and had to the cafeteria and had a cup of coffee while I read it. And then I came back to him and said, Pierre, I want to ask you a couple of questions about this contract. And he said, what? I said, let me read you this. You know, at the end of a contract, there's always these terms and definitions. And there was a paragraph there that read exactly as follows. I'll never forget it. Accounting terms used in this agreement shall be redefined by the 20th Century Fox Accounting Department if and when litigation is entered into among the parties. And he said, huh. you're joking. You're that, joking. That doesn't Even I that. know that's not good. Yeah. So it turned out that the biggest law firm in town uh, had written that contract and everybody had signed it, and uh, nobody pointed out that clause to him, which means that Fox could redefine the accounting terms anytime they wanted to, uh, if there was any argument about them. And uh, that's when I learned that, you know, contracts are a different kind of story. You learn a lot about a company and an individual you're signing with when you read the contract they sent, um, because it tells you all about them. Here it tells them, you know, we're Fox will do whatever we want to do. Um, and once I was part of a, a big movie at Disney and somebody sued us, meaning Disney, and everybody involved in the movie, like 62 respondents in the lawsuit, because that's what people do. If you hire an expensive you know, law firm, they sue everybody. And they sued us because they said that this origin of the movie came from somewhere else than where it came from. And uh, and I I got a call. I called the Fox legal department, I mean, the Disney legal department. I said, do I have to worry about this? Because I was covered 
by our contract that said they would defend me if, you know, if anybody sued the group. And they said, don't worry about it. Nobody, you know, I guess I can't say the word here on radio, but no one screws with with the mouse, he said, <laughs> except it wasn't <laughs> And, and then I, you know, I, once again, I thought this story is so powerful. It's getting people suing about it. It's amazing. Uh, so I really, my adrenaline started running, and it just hasn't stopped since since then, 30 years ago, because uh, something that makes your adrenaline uh, run happens almost every day in the in the world of stories. And this kind of started with Norman Cousins, who, by the way, if I remember correctly, was a political journalist. What am I missing? Yeah, he, he yeah, was a literary, he was a, literary uh, a New Yorker, edited my favorite magazine in those days, Saturday Review, and it became Saturday Review World, and uh, et cetera. And he was a, a wonderful man. He wrote several books, including Anatomy of an Illness, in which he talked about laughter as the perfect way to heal uh, many human conditions, uh, which, again, another example of the power of stories. Storytelling, yeah. Yeah, watching a Three Stooges movie or a Charlie Chaplin movie was his way of curing himself, uh, and it worked. Uh, so, yeah, he was a great man and a huge inspiration to me. And I've been lucky through my life to have, uh, as I call them in my my book, uh, male authority figures to guide me along. I Lucky I don't think covers it. <laughs> I'm almost speechless. I mean, you have just been placed or put yourself in places where people, and you listened, which is important, where people were able to observe you, watch what you were doing, offer advice, ask for or unasked for it, and you listened. So apparently you have gotten to hear some tremendous stories along the road that you've paid attention to. And I can't stress that enough. We have to listen. Do I believe it? Do I not believe it? Are there parts of it that just make me go, ooh, ooh? Are there parts of it that make me go, oh, I'm never talking to you again? Yeah, this, we're all observing. We're all judging. And storytelling is, I think, how we do that listening to stories, creating our stories, sharing our stories. So I don't think yeah, I'm I mean, dead wrong. I mean, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, I have been fortunate to have many people uh, to listen to and, and to seek them out, actually. Uh, and that goes way back to the beginning. But um, And one of my favorite things to do these days is my coaching program where I actually get to listen to other people tell me their issues and then give them some of my experience. I always say my, my goal is to reduce their learning curve from, you know, possibly 10 years down to a year uh, from all the stuff I've gone through because I did it all backwards and, you know, a Cajun way of – a Cajun will get across the field, but he's, he will never take a direct route. And I feel like that's what my life has been is taking an indirect route to everything cool that's happened to me. and. uh so, yeah, listening is hugely important, and I think people are desperate for it because not many chances do they get, you know, the time and the opportunity to listen to somebody who actually knows uh, what they're going through and can give them some input on how to deal with it. 
And listen, I agree with you. And we talked about you know your course, which I think people should really be paying attention to. But and maybe this is why you know podcasting has gotten so huge so quickly because there are a lot of terrific stories out there and it's a great way to network and connect and get your voice heard. In fact, one of my podcast guests recently, I was tossing around what I think the title of my book needs to be. And he he gave me an idea and I'm not going to tell you because it's, it's in not quite a title yet, but I was like, oh, I, I listened to him and I scribbled it down. It's on my whiteboard up there. He instantly saw what I was missing. So stories are a great way to to pick up something or learn something and figure out, how did I miss that big old gaping hole? Because we do it all the time. Yeah, because we're too involved in the details right in front of our eyes to step back and and look at it from 20,000 foot. I mean, I'm trying to help a lady right now who's in the middle of what could become an extremely tangled and messy legal issue. Uh, with a movie, and uh, I tried to tell her, well, the first day I agreed to help her, I tried to tell her, I'm going to look at this from the 20,000-foot level, not from the detail level, not from the emotional level, all of which is extremely valid and undeniable, but none of which will get you uh, to a bottom line you can live with and build a sane life around. So, I'm just going to look at it from that level, and you may not like it, but, you know, here's what you need to do. It's really simple. And then you can make that. And she listened. I mean, she really listened, and uh, she argued a little bit and then came back the next day and said, this is exactly what I want to do. Just do what we what we talked about. And um, it's, you know, that that's the value of having people to you can listen to stories from because they're they're going to understand where you are uh, and they're going to tell you the story that will help you, not a story that will depress you or, you know, make you crazy, but one that will actually help you get out of the situation you're in, which was the original purpose of stories from the beginning of time, back to Homer and the oral tradition. When you told the stories of the Trojan war, you, you told war stories, to show people what was noble and what was not noble, what was worth going to war about, what was not worth going to war about, the value of life, the value of death, uh, et cetera. Stories have always been kind of a shield um, to help people stay on a behavioral course that was positive and constructive uh, instead of taking a, a terrible course. We need that again, don't we? I watch yeah, what's going are. on in our world right now, and I think, how did we devolve so quickly and so dramatically? It's sad. I, I, I worry a lot. I didn't used to, but, boy, I worry now. Well, Edmund Burke said something. Society is doomed when it's good men say nothing. And you wonder today whether where are all the good men and women who will speak up and tell the truth? And there are a few shining examples, but not very many. Um, when you look back to other times where there were many more, but when the world's in the most crisis, the greatest leaders emerge too. That that's part of the the irony of the human race is that <clears throat> until you get to a big crisis, the leaders you don't hear from the leaders. But 
you know, the Churchills, the Roosevelt's uh, emerge, you know, when when things get really hairy. Thank and, you. And then they tell, and then they tell, and they tell stories to, to get us out of the situation. Churchill is one of my favorite historical figures. I can't get enough of reading almost everything about him. Fascinating man. Yeah. I agree. One of my favorite Churchill stories is he's sitting at a state dinner and the lady next to him and did not like him at all. She said, sir, I must tell you that if I were your wife, I would poison your soup. And he <laughs> looked at her with, yeah. without missing a beat. said, if I were your husband, madam, I would drink it. Yes. And that's perfect. <laughs> it's like a one-liner, but he got the message. I mean, it had a beginning an end, and an end. There was no room exactly. for, for misunderstanding that statement. That's right. It was the power of stories because it's memorable. One of the characteristics of a story is that it's memorable. It's hard to forget a story or a good joke. It's easy to forget a bad story or, you know, bad joke. But uh, when he spoke, it was me- often memorable. Sorry, I muted you and then couldn't find my mute button. But but here's the thing, and I think a lot of people probably at some level know this at a gut level, but they don't know how to execute. And every story has to have, a, like I said, a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it has to be pithy. It has to be, you know, not P-I-T-H-Y for those people thinking, what is she saying? It's pithy. It has to make sense. It has to be crisp and clean and memorable. Yeah, exactly. We we all have those relatives that you really dread hearing their stories because they, they have beginnings and middles, but they don't have any ends. And you could listen to them for two hours on the phone and they would still keep telling you the same story on and on and on. That was like my Uncle Ed. Um just didn't know how to round that story out and bring it to a pithy end. Um, so, yeah, we all know what, you know, what makes a great story. And beginning, middle, and end is one of the things. Although an Italian director said, yeah, but not necessarily in that order, <laughs> which was kind of hilarious, making fun of the structure of storytelling. You know, that it, it is true. You don't have to put the beginning, middle, and end in that same order every time. Um, you can start a movie with the end and and then work back. And the truth is it doesn't matter what order you tell a story in as long as it's dramatic and as long as it keeps the audience, you know, involved at every minute. And it has to make sense because when you're going to be recalling this story, whether you heard it on a porch or you heard it in a movie, with me it's almost always in a book, there has to be that one line that makes me go, oh. I remember that. There has to be that one moment where it all makes sense to you. Otherwise, it's just a story and not even a good story. It's not something that makes you go, oh, that's sticking with me. Exactly. And if you have that one memorable moment, you that's all you have to remember. I mean, you don't have to remember it because you will remember it. Uh, and then from that, you can reconstruct the whole story if you need to retell it. And another characteristic of a good storyteller is he he knows his audience and how much time he has to tell the story in. Okay, Einstein was a great speaker and storyteller, and he he didn't prepare for speeches. He just got driven to a speech, and 
he would ask just before he walked up to the stage, what's the audience here? Uh, what's, subject, what's the subject matter and how much time do I have? So whether he was talking to a high school audience about, you know, atomic fusion or whether he was talking to a Nobel Prize winning audience about, you know, uh, the speed of light, he, he always told a, a totally gripping story based on the time available, the subject matter he was supposed to talk about. He made them dramatic uh, because he was a natural storyteller. So basically, and I'm listening very intently, I'm not ignoring you, I'm listening and I'm scribbling down notes. He was very aware of who his audience was and what their needs were, and he was willing to take that feedback so he could make it pertinent. And isn't that what great story is all about? You know, how pertinent is it to your audience? When do their eyes start rolling up or back and they faint? Yeah. I mean, what what do you need That's to pay totally attention to? In my uh, first book on writing a writer's time, I, I, I tried to dispel what I call fourth grade myths, myths about writing. Um, and I said, to, to write, to do great writing, you need to write from your heart. But that's just, that's not enough. Not just enough to write from your heart because too many people are dashing out endless journals from their heart. You have to add to it, write from your heart about things that matter to us all. Then, then you're doing the right kind of writing. Um, because a writer, right, as you're saying, writing to me is writing for an audience. It's communication, uh, the most essential part of human behavior, communication. Even sex, you know, from sex up to storytelling, it's about communication. It's either physical communication or it's, you know, it's verbal communication. It's intellectual communication. It's mental communication. One way or the other, we need to have an audience to be good storytellers and the best audience, the best storyteller fashions his story for the particular audience that he's in front of. He changes his vocabulary to fit that audience. If he's talking to engineers, he uses engineering language. If he's talking to fourth graders, he uses fourth grade, fourth grade language because nothing to him, I always say the most important character in your story is your audience. The audience, if right. you don't. If you don't Remember that going to be something wrong with your story, and we're going to have to go back and revise it to make sure that the audience is involved in the story all the way through. You know, great directors like Hitchcock or you know uh, Kubrick or uh, Spielberg, they they're so successful because they know exactly what the audience wants and how to either give it to them uh, in a little way that they didn't expect or uh, to disappoint it and then give it to them afterwards just to show that you understood them and you were talking to them all the way. Uh, you know, there's kind of two kinds of jokes. The one that has the payoff that, that the joke leads you to expect and the one that has a surprising payoff. And Peter Sellers was the one that was, was a master of the surprising payoff. And, you know, most, Great comedians and storytellers uh, are the you know lead you to a to an audience to an ending that you expect along the way and therefore it satisfies your 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 uh, your read 
and you you don't wonder why you read it. Like nothing worse than walking out of a theater or closing a book and going, oh my god, I spent all that time and this is what I get. Like I remember reading the French Lieutenant's Woman and being disappointed that it had three endings. That's not what we pay for. We pay for a single dramatic ending that we'll never forget. And it's just not fair to us. You know, if you buy a ticket at the price, you know, to go to a Broadway show and there's not satisfaction at the end, you know, you're going, I didn't pay for an intellectual experience where I could wonder about the possibilities of life. I wanted a, a smashing ending that I could walk out of the theater humming. I never even thought about that. And while you were talking, I was thinking about Kindle books because I, like I said, I'm a voracious reader. I've got over 6,000 books on my Kindle. I've got probably somewhere over 3,000 physical books in my house, my garage. (laughs) They're everywhere. They're in every room. They're in my car. And one thing, I, I, I really resisted the Kindle for the longest kind of time. I love having a book book in my hands. I love to crack the spine and smell, especially if it's an old book. And I had to really kind of be drugged into the Kindle world. But now, and I download probably eight or ten free books a day just to see what they're all about. And I'll know within ten minutes, am I going to keep this or not? I don't even have to do what my old habit with a, a paper book was to, you know, read the first two chapters and then peek at the end to see if I really wanted to finish it. And now I can just go and I just delete it. So it's, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but if you don't catch my interest, and I think it's true for most people, we're not sticking around. We're not giving you our attention or our money. Yeah, we're not interested in that story. And, you know, that's yeah. not the kind of story you want to read right now. And uh, so, so yeah, we have that power. I mean, the, the ultimate symbol of that power is the remote control machine, you know, that thing you hold in your hand in front of television. If a movie starts to lose your interest in 60 seconds, you, you, you switch to another channel. Um, that's, we are in an incredibly luxurious time when oh, the whole world – yeah, the, the whole universe of stories is laid out before us, and we can afford to pick and choose. That's how we construct our lives, by the stories we choose to hear. Exactly. So we've talked about what makes a great storyteller and your uncles, and I love those guys. I mean, just I've, I think I've known both of them in my own life, and the elements of a good story, but how did you go from telling jokes basically to selling stories for serious money? Because you have sold some very serious stories. Do you want to share some of those? Well, it was a, it was an evolution. At first, I, I always preferred literature uh, to any other study that I had starting in high school. Uh, I always say that I, I read, I learned Latin to read Virgil's Aeneid. I, I learned Greek to read Homer's Iliad. Uh, I learned French to read uh, Gargantua and Pantagruel. You know, I learned Spanish to read Don Quixote. This is what I followed. I followed my nose towards stories, and it made me learn seven or eight languages. And uh, and I was always focused on the similarity of stories, the structure no matter whether you're talking Russian or in French, the stories have, you know, similar structures, you know, beginnings, middle and end, but strong protagonists. And uh, 
huge obstacles that that protagonist has to deal with along the way. And, uh, and, and then it naturally read, led to Hollywood because there's where there's the ultimate expression of stories when you, I mean, the power of Hollywood is an example of Prince of Tides, one of my favorite novels by Conroy, uh, 650 pages long as a book. The movie was 120 minutes long, and it was spectacular, and, and a spectacular recreation of the book story, but it had to drop 300, 400 pages. And that's because it's you're seeing three-dimensional. You're saying, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, a moving picture is worth a million words. And uh, so storytelling, I, I just pursued my interest in storytelling every way I could until I realized that I, I wanted to be in this ultimate world of storytelling um, where, you know, you get to see it three dimensions up on the stage uh, and you, 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 every choice that's made is absolutely life or death in a movie. If a guy has a red pickup, shows up twice, you need to see it at the end of the movie. You need to know what happened to that truck. Otherwise, why is it red? You know, whereas in a novel, you don't notice those things as much because there's so many more words to get lost in, but you never forget a visual image. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry, but I forgot your question, but <laughs> We're just talking about how you you went from selling stories to serious money, but now I'm no longer interested in that. Now I'm I'm not talking about what you're talking about. The, and see, the thing is, I I never really looked at movies that way seriously. I just a book is everything that I could ever want or need. And on the rare occasions that I will read a book and then go watch the movie, I'm almost invariably really ticked because I just don't get the transition except for the Harry Potters. I mean, they were pretty true to the, you know, the whole saga and I've got them all. I read every one of them, but it's, for me, it's hard to make a transition from a book to a movie. There's just so much that's cut out or it's just wrong. And I spend the whole time going, that didn't happen. I'm mad. I'm mad through the whole movie. Do you find people like me are abnormal or am I alone here? No, everyone has their own characteristic relationship to stories, and you have a very strong loyalty factor where if you see the story in book form, you're loyal to that. Uh, you're like you have an authorial response to stories because uh-huh. the hardest thing movie is the author has to be dealt with, and the author wants you to keep every single you know, period and every colon in, in their story into the movie. Here's a huge example. Anne Rice was so upset by what she heard that Universal was doing to interview with the vampire uh, that she took a 10-pay, I mean, she took a $10,000 ad out in, you know, the New York Times uh, attacking Universal about how they were destroying her book with very little evidence, a few rumors that she heard here and there. It's kind of like the Mary Poppins story. But anyway, she was invited to a private screen in L.A., they sent a private jet to New Orleans to pick her up and take her to L.A. She saw the movie. She was bowled over by it. And she took another ad in the New York Times apologizing for her first ad afterwards because apparently they, they hit a chord with her and they did a good job as far as you know they were concerned, I mean, as far as she was concerned. So that is another reaction, but it, your reaction is, 
probably most common to people who really love books. Uh, but but I'm not sure. I, I could cure you of it if you wanted to be cured because I would tell you to watch a couple of movies before you read the book. Oh, and, which and ones? Then, I mean, I'm willing uh, to uh, – if there's – if it's an experiment that I'm willing to try, I'm willing to try. So, you know, tell me which ones you think I ought to watch first. Well, I think you well, should think watch you Prince, should of Prince of Tarkin. Uh, Barbara, Barbara Streisand directed that and was hugely, hugely influential in the script. The script. I already uh, read the, the book. Yeah, you already yeah, read you already it. Can you remember? Yes. Sorry. Have you seen the movie? I have not. But you know what? It was um, a very long time ago when I read that book. I probably won't have a, a great grasp on the story anyway. Okay. Did, if you, I wrote uh, it down. did you see Faulkner's The Sound and the Fury? No. Okay. He, he wrote it when he was in Hollywood. Uh, and it's a very powerful movie. But it's very different from the book that, that he wrote, the, you know, the Pulitzer Prize winning book. Um because it has to be, uh, and yet, he, you know, the book is told from five different points of view, for example, and the movie is only told from Benji's point of view. Uh, Benji was the crazy brother. And it's so powerful that you, you all thoughts of the book go out of your mind as you see it. Um, and, of course, it was written by Paul. Right. It's, it's an, there's another one that I call The Incredible Lightness of Being. Um, another kind of Nobel Prize winning book. But if you see the movie first, you will be very moved by the movie. And then you can read the book and decide, you know, decide how you feel about it. But with the book, there's always more in the book, more detail. Like in in Barbara Streisand's Prince of Tides, there's a 130 section, 130 page section of the book, uh, which is about his, his sister and her her relationship to the family and her writing children's books that the movie reduces to a single shot, a single camera shot. Uh, and it does it. It does the job. It's unbelievable because the storyteller who was doing the movie story understood the story so well that he, you know, what that piece of the book was doing what it was impact on the whole story, and he found a way of showing that in the movie, without having to give us all 130 pages of, of the children's book embedded in the in the overall novel. You know, um, so I, I, as somebody who's spent his lifetime taking stories apart and putting them together, um, I, you know, I could give a course on on the whole issue of movie versus book. I always tell novelists if they really want their novels to be sold to Hollywood, they should design them like movies before they even write them. Because, you know, the best sign that it's going to be a movie is when somebody says, oh, my God, this book should be a movie. It's so great. Um, and and uh, But you can design your books that way by making sure there are three acts, as you're saying, making sure there's a strong protagonist, making sure that the protagonist works in, 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 the, in, the, in the movie world. I once spent five years trying to make a movie about an old man and his young grandson, uh, and I could never get the movie made because it required an 83-year-old lead. They're almost 
<laughs> with the exception of Clint Eastwood, they're almost uninsurable. At that oh, age. And, I never even thought of that. It, yeah, because when you're spending millions of dollars on a movie, your the bonding company has to bond it so that you don't overspend. And what happens if the guy drops dead in the middle of the shoot? Then you're, you know, you are screwed. And uh, the million-dollar investors don't want to see that happen. So you have no. to take things into consideration. Well, that anyway, happened with the Harry Potter books. They had to switch Dumbledore midway. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure that costs millions of dollars. Again, so I never even there. thought of it. Right. It's amazing yeah, what you don't this, think of. You just go, you know, pay your money, you sit your seat down, you turn your head constantly to tell the people to stop chewing with their mouth open. I hate going to the movie theater. But there, you just story don't behind think, Yeah, you just don't yeah, think every, about all these different things. Yeah. But there is a story over every thirty seconds in a movie I could tell you a story. Because uh Filmmaking is extremely complicated because of that. Everybody's got a problem. And uh, every every one minute of film is a miracle. Wow. You know what? We've only got a couple of minutes, and we still have not gotten to one of my questions, which was how does the story get to Hollywood in the big screen? We've touched on it sufficiently that I want you to come back, if you would. Oh, I'd love to. I, I have another book called Sell Your Story to Hollywood, so... That could be the focus of this one, and this book was uh, Tell Your Story to the World and Sell It for Millions. Um, which you have story. done. Yeah, which which I've done, and um, and it's this one was for general storytellers. The other one is just about getting things to Hollywood, uh, but I'd be happy to come back. I, As you can tell, I'm always thrilled to talk about stories. Well... And I'm fascinated. I mean, I I can't even get the thoughts out of my head quickly enough because one overlaps the other or it gets stomped on because seconds. it was a better thought or, or you already answered it by happenstance. But it's a fascinating conversation. And the thing is, we all have to know storytelling if we're going to be online, if we're going to be marketers, if we're going to be podcasters. If we're going to be in relationships, I mean, whatever it is that we're doing, we, I believe, need to be proud and efficient storytellers. And I don't mean liars. I'm not saying that at all. But you need to be able to get people's attention, keep your own attention, and share just your wisdom with the world. Yeah, exactly. And you've got to figure out your relationship between, with truth. You know, Pilate said centuries ago, what is truth? And that is a question that we're all dealing with today, every day. Um, and we we actually tell lies all the time, but we don't have to call them that. Uh, somebody, you know, you, your spouse walks into the room and says, how do I look when you're about to go to a dance together? And you you have two choices. You can either tell the truth or, or you can you can Tell the truth or die, right? Yeah. Or, or you can tell something that will be useful to the moment. Uh, and, and we make that decision, you know, 30 times a day. Well, we and, have and yet to. we, yeah, we have to. In order to stay together as human beings, uh, we have to deal with that. Uh, it's the subject of my next book, The Whole Relationship with Truth. <laughs> 
And uh, oh. anyway, it was great, okay. great to talk you, to you. Thank you. You've got to come back, then I'll call you and we'll get that set up. But listen, before I let you go, we, we are not streaming any longer, but we are still recording. So do you have any kind of last-minute thoughts or ideas, you know, things that you think people really should be paying attention to? When they're trying to find their storytelling voice, whether they're writing, look, I write differently than I speak, no question about it. And you mentioned earlier, you know, whenever I'm talking with a specific audience, I have a computer science degree. I'm a nerd. I'm a nerd in stilettos. I can talk code all day long. Nobody cares. I can't. <laughs> Seriously, they don't. They're like, what? what? What kind of stilettos? Let me see your closet. They don't care about, you know any kind of degree that I may have. But once you kind of figure out what your story is and how you're going to present it, are you writing it? Are you using body motion? You know, I can tell a lot from the way people are moving. I bet you can too. There's just so many ways that we can get our stories across, and it doesn't necessarily have to be the spoken word. It can be any manner of things. It's everything you do, really. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's important that we, you know, one thing I, I tell people is the storyteller is an ancient uh, priest. You know, you, if you have a story and you don't tell it, you've betrayed your vision. You've betrayed yourself. Who's going to tell it if it's your story and you didn't tell it? So you have a responsibility to telling the story, and that means uh, to, to finding the best professional way to tell it. Um, and I always tell people, you know, if, if you don't tell your story, the human race may have lost that story forever. So I, I take it very seriously. Yeah, you'll just be blotted yeah. out like you were never here. Yeah. Exactly. Huh. I mean, we, we, were, we were given imaginations and voices for a reason. And keeping silence is not a good, you know, it's nothing to do with the reason we live. I agree with you. Listen, I definitely want you to come back and we'll get that set up. So before I let you go, where can people find you? Um, well, the simplest way is atchety at storymerchant.com. And to learn more about what we do, storymerchant.com is the primary website that leads to all the other websites, just storymerchant.com. Perfect. Ken, thank you. It has been, again, delightful speaking with you. And my brain is, I, I don't think you can hear it go, zit, zit, zit. it is. It's just bouncing all over the place. I'm probably going to give myself a headache. But I thank you. And I thank you for being with me again and for coming again. So I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Say it again. Oh, I just said it was a delight talking with you, and you're a good audience, and you're uh, you're on both sides of the microphone. Oh, thank you good so story. much. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, before we say goodbye, I would like to remind our audience to be sure to look for us on iTunes and anywhere else you consume your business podcasts. Honestly, you can't throw a stick on the Internet without hitting your partner in success radio. So just look for us and take us along on your success journey. Ken, I'm afraid you're going to be a regular here. I'm just going to let you know right now. Thank you. I, I love that. Anytime. <laughs> okay. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, 
contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab. 